What a customer was eating five years ago is completely different now. So you've got to stay sharp on that market front. Because food waste really starts at the farm and then it finishes at the end of a scraped plate. This is the Food and Beverage Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. Hope you're hungry. Let's dig in. All right, welcome to this week's episode of the Food and Beverage Podcast brought to you by MarketScale. My name is Tyler Kern. I'm your host today, and I'm also joined in the studio this morning by my colleague, Matt Farley. Hello, Matt. Hey there. How are you today? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm doing great. So you are in the studio today to talk to us a little bit because you're a big fan of the food and drink. You also keep a blog. So we're going to talk a little bit about your blog and how you started. Uh, what made you interested, first of all, in just writing about food? Uh, well, you know, these days it's a little bit taboo to, to call myself this, but I am a foodie. I, well, maybe I'm not a foodie, but I am far more interested in food than the average person and the way it tastes, the way it's presented. Um, when I was a little kid, I always received the compliment of, I love having you over and cooking because your compliments are so sincere and specific. Um, and I'd kind of taken that and, you know, just assume that people want to know what I have to say about restaurants and living in Dallas. It's a great place to do it. It's a booming restaurant city and lots of uh, different flavors coming in. You know, there's the classic Southwest cooking that uh, people like Dean Fearing and, uh, you know, all of his uh, protégés have have brought to popularity. Uh, it's a cuisine that's taken a lot more seriously. And then, you know, Dallas is also one of the biggest cities in the United States. So you have a whole bunch of different foods and flavors and ideas. And a lot of the time, you know, you have Texas traditions making their way into some of the more, uh, the other kinds, types of ethnic cuisines. It's funny that you mentioned foodies because I think everybody watches like maybe one episode of Chef's Table and they're like, I too am now a foodie. I care about the fine things of life. But this is something that you're actually like very, very passionate yeah, about. Yeah, I... And believe me, I love Chef's Table, and I, I would be lying if I didn't say that inspired me in some sort of way to, to care more. But really what, what that did was make me just think about the role of a chef and you know what that really means in the restaurant to, to be the chef and to be responsible for every plate that ends up going to someone. And, you know, Restaurants are interesting because they compete with people eating at home. And so, you know, why go somewhere and have someone cook for you and pay a lot more money for them to do it unless it's going to be special? So, uh, you know, bringing back Chef's Table, I think that show does a great job of just making the chef, ma making people know that the chef, you know, has a mission to, to put something on a plate that makes someone feel like they're receiving something special, something that's just for them. Yeah, and you mentioned just how unique Dallas is earlier just because uh, it's a huge city, but it also has those Southwest-type flavors and kind of the birth of Tex-Mex and that, that sort of scene and that that kind of thing all happened here. It's a, it's a weird intersection of being a huge city while also having cultural flavors that are maybe different than a lot of other places around the country. I know each place kind of has, a, I, I suppose, a tradition that has arisen out of uh, this, the different uh, ethnicities and cultures that have gone through those cities and kind of been prominent at different times. 
times, but Dallas certainly has a taste that seems to be all its own in a, in a weird sense. Oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, a lot of the things that people think about when they think of Texas food is barbecue and, uh, yeah, like you said, Tex-Mex. But what I think is really cool is in the slightly more formal setting, you have people making dishes that kind of honor that, uh, you know, more casual barbecue Tex-Mex feel, but uh, you're going to bring it to a plate with a completely, like, new twist. You know, I've had rabbit enchiladas with with a, you know, barbecue sauce kind of drizzled tastefully on top of that. So, you know, it's not something that you ever would expect, and, and I never would think that I would, you know, see that on a menu and get it, but once you're starting to think about what's going to make a restaurant different, you want to order those things. You want to get the antelope and you want to get the rabbit enchiladas and the, the stuff that's unique to the restaurant. Yeah. And it makes you excited about going there as opposed to just having home cooking, which is tough to compete with on some level. I think, uh, I think the restaurants that I like the most also bring in a little bit of the element to where it feels like the person that made it cared about it the same way that if it was someone's you know your best friend's mom making you food or something or your grandmother making you food or something like that i think that there's that element of uh heart or soul that has to go into uh good cuisine that that really sets it apart yeah i mean i think that's the most important thing a restaurant can do is make you feel like something was made for you by another person you know um that's not what a McDonald's does. McDonald's probably made your meal before you even got there. So that's not the purpose that they're trying to achieve. You know, they're trying to put out a lot of food and do it so that you can just buy it and eat it. Uh, that's not what I like about restaurants. I like when a restaurant puts a lot of thought into something and makes you feel special because you're eating it. You probably don't like to be asked what your favorite restaurant in Dallas is, I'm going to guess. So I'm not going to do that. But, you know, what are some uh, what are some standout places that you have enjoyed and, and maybe how did, how have they uh, played into kind of shaping your opinion of cuisine? Yeah, um, you're right. I don't love having, you know, being put on the spot, like, what's the one restaurant I have to go to? Right. Um, it's, it's too much. It's too big. It's like asking a music fan, like, you know, what's your favorite band of all time or whatever? And it's like, well, I like lots of different things for lots of different reasons. So, yeah. you know, you can you can run the gamut as wide as you want, you know, yeah. with that answer. Um, as far as special restaurants, um, I already mentioned Dean Fearing. Fearing's is in the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. That's one of the best dinners you can have in Dallas. Um, you know, the service is top-notch. The presentation is top-notch. The flavors are amazing. You know, it's it's one of the few places you can order a tortilla soup and have it blow you away. Um, So that's definitely one. As far as some new, there's lots of new exciting restaurants popping up. Fine China and the Statler. Uh, I think Angela Hernandez is the chef and she's doing some kind of modern, or excuse me, traditional Chinese techniques, but definitely bringing some modern flair to them. Um, And then here's your, there's your classic, sorry. There's your classic barbecue joint that, you know, I think every Texas city has to have the one place you got to go. For me, it's Pecan Lodge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know there are some, some places fighting to have that title, but part of that is also just being able to go to Deep Ellum and stand in line at 10 a.m. for barbecue. Um, that's, that, that's brisket that is 
you know, special. It's, it's the kind of place where I'll go there with one other person and still order more than five pounds so that I can, <laughs> so that I can have it for the rest of the week. I absolutely agree. And I, I like making that trek over to Deep Ellum and before we get too far into the weeds, just about Dallas food, but go over to Deep Ellum, you get an old fashioned over at Hyde and then head over to uh, Pecan Lodge. It's a pretty ideal night for me. That's uh, oh, absolutely. That's, that's a winner. All right. So that's Matt Farley. He's uh, going to show up again later on in the show when we talk a little bit about technology in restaurants and how it's kind of moving things forward and how restaurants have to adapt to certain uh, challenges that have been presented and also adapt um, to accommodate new ways of doing things. And as technology evolves, so too have restaurants. And so we're going to get into a little bit more of that coming down the line. On today's show, we also have two features for you. One of them is the science of seating. That's going to dive into a little bit of that technology, like I mentioned. And then we're going to get into the history of home brewing. If you like beer and you like the home brewing and kind of craft beer scene, uh, you're going to want to hear a little bit more about the history of home brewing, how it came about, and uh, who have been some of the pioneers in that industry. So stick around for those features as well, all coming up on this episode of the food and beverage podcast. All right, so thank you to Matt Farley for joining me for that opening segment of the Market Scale Food and Beverage Podcast. As I mentioned, Matt's going to join us again later on in the show for our news analysis piece, where we take a look more at technology in restaurants and how technology is helping restaurants become more efficient and to help do a better job creating good customer experiences in restaurants. So that is coming up later on in the show. But right now, we have a conversation with Ray Camillo. He's the founder and CEO of Blue Orbit Restaurant Consulting. And one of the things that Ray is really passionate about is helping restaurants stay open, just making them more efficient, making them more profitable, uh, helping them with their business models and repairing broken concepts. And we're going to talk to him about the science of seating. So how patrons are seated in restaurants, the science behind that, there is an art to it, as Ray is going to point out. And so I think this is going to be a really informative interview, and I hope you really enjoy it. Coming up next, that is Ray Camillo, the CEO and founder of Blue Orbit Restaurant Consulting. It seemed that so many other restaurants, if the companies that I was working for struggled to get the information to the operations level, then I'm sure plenty of other companies had that problem. So it was sort of a cottage industry for me and a good niche to go out and help restaurants fix their restaurants, as well as to help them prevent their problems from the beginning by helping people launch restaurants that made sense. First of all, the, the problems that people have are mostly related to how they seat and how they manage their front doors. To make sure you don't leave any money on the table, it's a relatively simple formula for all of your square footage. As long as you're over, say, 2,500 square feet, it's about 31 and a half square feet per seat, period, including the kitchen. Designers will talk about the ratio of kitchen to front of the house, and that's why I say as long as it's over 2,500 square feet, you can only miniaturize your kitchen so far before it doesn't get any smaller. And so as you shrink below 2,500 square feet, you end up with a, a kitchen that's static and a dining room that's shrinking. And so that number grows from 31 and a half to 35 to 40 pretty quickly. Staying above 2,500 square feet, you should be able to put enough seats. If you divide that square footage by 31 and a half, you're going to get the number of seats that you should be able to fit in the restaurant. If you can't, then you're doing something wrong. The rest of the problems come from the way the door is managed. So we see the roles being poorly defined. We see not enough people put on the front door. Per every 75 seats, we like to see at least one post. And so we see the problem stemming from a lack of organization at the front, a lack of communication, and a lack of structure. For mom and pop restaurants, especially this sort of new wave of mom and pop restaurants where uh, they may be chef driven or they are really hip and cool and they're heavy on design, there's uh, often 
there's someone young at the helm who doesn't have the experience to really learn how to manage the, the guest flow and the queuing. And so that may be a hole in their game. And so we see that a lot. And it's, again, sort of just left to a fresh face or a collective of nice people to manage with very little training. In general, restaurant training leaves a lot to be desired. There's not a lot of commitment to training for a restaurant. We like to put front desk people. We call them front desk people versus sort of as a generic term versus sort of host and hostess. But uh, front desk folks, we like to put them through the kitchen for a day. We like to, so they can see the flow of the kitchen, we like to put them on the floor as a server just to follow a server before we put them in their vocation at the front desk. And so we think exposing them to what's happening in the rest of the restaurant so they understand the flow and the, the important role they play in taking the guest from their first impression to the floor and making sure that they get taken care of by servers in a, a good rhythm. I think that's what that's what gets left behind. Servers are, in the industry, they say double seated, where a guest is seated in a section and then right after that, another guest is seated. And so the server, there's a delay between the time the server can get to the second table. And so we like to spread the good tables, quote unquote, among different servers. A lot of places will have a section with a group of tables by the window. And those are the best seats in the house. And one server has the best seats in the house. We like to divvy those up among, say, three or four servers so that when the guest requests or wants the best seat in the house, we can give it to them without worrying about double seating. I liken it to sort of an aircraft carrier deck. If everybody is doing everything, then there's chaos. So there are three distinct functions. One is the greeter, one is the controller and one is the seater. And so the greeter's job, if that person stays locked down on the front desk and their job is to be the friendly face, to communicate with the guests what's happening, to communicate the wait and to take names if they're taking it on a wait list or to identify reservations, that's a mouthful. That's a lot of work. And so they need to just do that. The controller's job is to, they're sort of the air traffic controller. They're not talking to guests at all. Their job is to figure out where they're going to put the guests. They're tracking the dine time and when guests are likely to be getting up so that they can plan to put another guest down in that seat. And they're also directing the seater and managers and servers, anybody that can help seat. The controller, just like the greeter, doesn't move from the front desk area, but they don't communicate with guests at all. Oftentimes you'll see them with their either their back turned to the guest or they're sort of in a, in a satellite or a secondary desk that's behind the main front desk and sort of driving a computer screen. And then the seater's role is to to actually take the guests to the seat and they're another friendly face. They're pacing their movements through the dining room. They're pulling chairs out. That's where your, your high touch service comes in. The first chance of high touch service comes in with a front desk person or a host sort of pulling the chair out and being gracious and handing the menu from the right with the right. And then what they're also doing on the way back, I liken it to the Crosby, Stills, and S song, you know, love the one you're with, you know, work where you are, don't go to the work. So on your way back, you are gathering menus, of course, but you're also taking note of all the tables that are in your path and where they are in the dining experience so that you can report that back to the controller so they know what to do. If you opened a shoe store, you don't have enough money to open a small shoe store and have a chief financial officer and a chief operating officer and a chief executive officer. So you may wear all three hats. And so it's the same with
with the front desk, it doesn't mean that those functions don't get done. You still have to look at them that way, but we have to make sure that we carve up those responsibilities. So one of the ways to do that is at least on the first seating, the servers are your seeders. So you don't have another host there on payroll doing that function. Your servers are gathered near the front so that they can escort the guest. Say you have 10 server sections. Well, that's 10 seatings that the servers can handle without needing a, a, a seater. Also, there's no real need for a controller because you're not full. It's when you get full that you really need that controller there. So you can stagger in your front desk staff and then stagger them out as well without needing to have a dedicated person there the, the whole time. The last thing they want, to uh, a sort of 21-year-old uh, who's on their summer job, the last thing they want to deal with is an irate customer because they underquoted. They said it would be 30 minutes and it turned into 45 minutes. That guest is now livid. It's much easier to just say, you know what, it's going to be 90 minutes. It's not that they're trying to get the guests to go away or to dine somewhere else, but they're certainly trying to avoid the pain of being criticized by that guest for not quoting their weight properly. Well, when you have that information coming back to you from the seater, and the seater is leaving the front desk, it's almost immediately after arriving. I mean, they come back with the information, hand the controller the information, and then they're, then they're gathering menus and taking another table out. So this information from one or two or three seaters, and you can turn managers into seaters very easily, that information will come back just as rapidly. And so they're constantly being updated with new information. And based on what stage of the dining experience the guest is in, you have time amounts. So if the check is down, you should be able to seat that table in the next five minutes, for instance, whatever it turns out to be for that particular restaurant. If the table is on dessert, it's going to be maybe 10 or 15 minutes, etc. If they're on entrees, it may be another half an hour before they, they depart. So you have these sort of planned exits for the guests based on their dine time. So I think it's really important to track how many guests are in each stage of the dining experience, and then you can quote how many guests are coming in, marry that with your reservations. When you can see how important it is to have the controller focus only on that issue. And when you have the, the weight quoted correctly, you're going to end up with a dining room that is seating tables and the, the seats are almost still hot. The table's clean, it's not wet, silverware's down, and the new guest is at the table quickly. That's going to increase revenue. You, I mean, when you think about it, you only have two and a half hours for dinner. I know that the restaurant may open at five for dinner and then they may close at 10. So that's five hours, but the bell curve of volume in that five hours maybe sort of 6.30 to 8, maybe 8.30, and that's the peak. So you have to be able to maximize that time in order to make as much money as possible. A lot of it comes down to the reservation software. A lot of people will use reservation software as they should, but they will allocate too many tables to the reservation system and not enough to walk in. So we find that a hybrid between walk-in customers and sort of reservations is important because you have to fill in the gaps of your reservations with walk-in guests. And truly, the, the reservation times, you want to steer people to have, you want to steer your restaurant to have, say, two or three seatings a night, which is tough. That means you have to have an early seating, a midday seating, and a late seating. If you're lucky, you can get three, uh, two you should expect. And so you want to steer people away from making reservations at 7.30. That's your peak time. So you don't want to open up the dining room to all 7.30 reservations because that's all anybody really wants is the 7.30 spot. So you want to open it up at, say, 5 o'clock and try to seat as many as you can in that slot. And then when they're getting up, you're going to have another one at, say, 6.30. That's another seating. 
maybe 6.45, and then you're going to have another one, another hour and a half after that, let's say 8.15 or 8 o'clock, you'll have another seating. So plotting it out to have enough walk-in spots interspersed will allow you to, to juggle that and give your host some comfort in uh, knowing that they can seat someone off the door while they're waiting for a guest instead of leaving that table sitting open and then telling guests that are walking in that you're full. If you're a brand new restaurant and you don't know what your dine time is, put a stake in the ground. Say, look, my dine time is an hour. If you're wrong on that first night, you, you can recover, but you're going you're gonna to understand how people are using your restaurant. You may think it's an hour dine time, but really people are enjoying your restaurant more than you thought they would. And they may stay for two hours. If that's the case, you're going to adjust all of your time slots accordingly, and it's always going to change. You're going to have seasonal time slots, and you're going to track this information and make sure that you know for events, like if you're near a concert venue, when there's a concert in town, the dime time is 45 minutes because people are, are in and out. They're not getting appetizers. They're just getting entrees and they're leaving or they're taking something to go. So you're going to have that information. Be sure to diligently track that information so that you can plan for it. Well, like a hotel, a hotel with a bed, hotels don't make any money when their beds are empty. And so restaurants are the same. They're not making money when seats are empty. You need to make sure that you can keep them there if there's a wait with some sort of bar area or make sure you take care of them if they're waiting outside and it's uncomfortable outside. Bring out a pitcher of iced tea or some lemonade or maybe bring out uh, something to nibble on because they're gonna be waiting for an hour. For the rest of the restaurant, you wanna make sure that your guests are not that they never feel like you're not in control. And when you do that, you can guide them to the right table. Some of that is through your programming, like I talked about, making sure that you're taking them to the best available table instead of just what you have left. You have a great restaurant with beautiful seats up front and you take them back and seat them by the kitchen. If you're not organized, then you're gonna waste time dragging that guest around the restaurant to try to find the table that they like. And yes, you're letting them choose their table, but they're now not happy because they've had to guide you. They've had to take charge and they feel bad. I think having control over the restaurant is a great way to make it efficient and to make it make money because you have to keep those seats warm, keep guests in those seats, keep them turning quickly. Because again, at lunchtime, you may have an hour and a half, maximum, maybe an hour. And at dinner time, you're going to have two and a half hours out of all those hours in the day that you're open. You have, what, four hours total that are your peak hours. So you have to maximize them. Thanks again to Ray Camillo, the founder and CEO of Blue Orbit Restaurant Consulting, for joining us on the Market Scale Food and Beverage Podcast. Coming up next are our news and information minutes brought to you by Market Scale. Today they're going to come from Sam Mosher. Sam, take it away. These are your food and beverage news minutes brought to you by Market Scale. According to a recent BBC report from King's College London, people today are more likely than ever to develop food allergies. Researchers at the college are working to find out why. Food allergies have been increasing, especially in Western countries, in the last few decades. In the UK, 7% of children have food allergies. Australia has the highest rate, where 9% of children have food allergies. Three people in the UK and Australia under the age of 16 have died this year from peanut, dairy, and sesame allergies. It is believed the development of allergies is caused by an individual's environment. Factors may include pollution, less exposure to microbes, and dietary changes. This may explain why Western countries, specifically their urban areas, have more people with allergies than developed countries or rural areas. Researchers believe that because people in developed countries have less exposure to infections, their immune systems turn against harmless foods instead and a food allergy is developed. 
Another theory is lack of vitamin D due to limited exposure to sunlight. A King's College study found that children who were given allergy trigger foods such as peanuts during weaning are less likely to develop that allergy. And in the food and beverage industry, manufacturers may find that following industry trends, managing inventory, or organizing a supply chain can be a challenge, but cloud computing may be the solution to these problems. Cloud computing is proving to be an essential tool in the industry. In a 2013 survey by KPMG International, executives from U.S. companies in the food industry found cloud computing to be the greatest factor contributing to industry growth. They said it can provide better interaction with customers and increase business opportunities. The ways in which cloud computing can be implemented are countless. Analytics and big data can sift through massive amounts of consumer data to report on industry trends. It can be used to detect issues in a supply chain to prevent food recalls. It can synthesize company data from multiple branches and locations into a singular location to simplify data management. If you're interested in learning more about how cloud computing can help food and beverage manufacturers, you can sign up for a web seminar on December 19th with representatives from Infor and Amazon Web Services on fooddive.com. And cloud computing is not the only innovation helping the food and beverage industry. Grab-and-go areas are proving to be the new craze at sports venues across the country. LA Biz compares these areas to convenience stores. Fans can walk in and take what they want from shelves, coolers, and drink bins. Then, they pay before leaving. Some have cashiers, and others are implementing self-service checkout system like Amazon Go's all-mobile solution. Some are even working to include mobile ordering. Grab-and-go areas can be found in many sport venues such as Yankee Stadium in Ford Field in Detroit. At Nissan Stadium in Nashville, two of its five highest-grossing concession locations are grab-and-go. Stadiums like grab-and-go because it requires less staff than regular concession stands. Fans like them because they are more consumer-friendly. Transactions during peak periods in a grab-and-go area can take less than two minutes, whereas they range from five to 12 minutes at a traditional stand. Two challenges with grab-and-go areas are keeping them stocked and clean in peak periods like halftime and keeping food fresh. I'm Sam Mosier, and these have been your Market Scale Food and Beverage Minutes. All right, those were your news minutes brought to you by MarketScale. We're back here in the studio. I'm Tyler Kern, still joined here by Matt Farley. We're going to talk a little bit more about technology and how it's transforming that restaurant industry. I was reading an article on Fast Casual recently that talked about the seven ways that technology is really helping evolve and uh, and move restaurants forward. And it was just really curious to me just that um, you never really think – Oh yeah, technology and restaurants. You think you go into a restaurant, you are seated, and it's the same process process that it's always been. But nowadays, more and more, there there's technology that's coming in that's kind of revolutionizing the restaurant going experience. And I was wondering, just in your mind, what have you experienced and what have you seen that has really uh, surprised you or interested you as far as technology and how software and tech are really um, help moving things forward? Yeah, uh, I've seen a lot. Uh, I think that restaurants are realizing that there's more and more ways or there I mean first of all there's a ton of competition so you need to set yourself apart but in order to get people to you know pay to eat at your restaurant you need to make their experience memorable Mm -hmm. and very pleasant Um, and that's what technology is really enabling a lot of restaurants to do as far as kind of I'll just hit you with the the big one right off the bat one of the most technically impressive restaurants I've ever been to is uh, 71 Above in Los Angeles. It's 
on the 71st floor, you have an incredible view. You can see the Hollywood sign. You can um, see the kind of the outline of Catalina Island. Uh, it's very impressive. But, you know, being up that high and having a view to offer poses some challenges. Uh, one being that you need people to be able to see out the restaurant without having the sun blasting on them during an entire meal. Um, to do that, they have uh, it's a product called Sage Glass, and it adjusts its tint according to the amount of brightness coming from outside. So, you know, when the sun's brighter, the tint's going to go up. You're still going to be able to see outside the restaurant and have that view, but you're not going to a be really hot and the restaurant's not going to heat up, but you know, you're also not going to have a bunch of glare hitting you in the face. And that's the kind of technology that, you know, you wouldn't really think about being super important for the guest experience, but guests are not going to like a restaurant if the sun's blaring in their face during lunch, um, or if the windows are tinted and they can't see out at night. So that's just a little thing. Um, and you know, I said that uh, that was a impressive one really from start to finish. You're up really high. And then at the end of the meal, you're bringing, you're, you're brought what looks like kind of a regular billfold and you open it and it's actually pretty much a tiny computer. Uh, it's a pay at the table system called the table safe rail. And, um, really the, the waiter waitress drops it off and, um, it's, super easy to use it's secure uh it reads your chip it's you know you never have to hand anyone your credit card and you know that's the guest side of things beyond that you have the staff who can literally just leave this at the table and then continue to serve the rest of the guests so um you know that's when you talk about you expect to go in a restaurant and have it be the same as it's always been that's something that definitely took me by surprise and uh, you know, I was like, this is a new way to do things, but gosh, it makes it a lot easier. I just paid and I don't have to wait to put my card in and then give it to the waiter, have them bring it back. And then, yeah, it's just one stop. Yeah. And you think about the different ways that that touches the restaurant going experience. First of all, more comfortable because light isn't just blaring, you know, straight into your eyes through the windows. And then, you know, you put your card, you get to pay there immediately rather than giving your card back to a waiter. You know, like there's that, there's always that system where you're like, this could, this, there has to be a better way to do this. And this is a better way to do it. And as you mentioned, it frees up the waiter to then continue doing whatever he wants to do, you know, whatever else he needs to do. Cause I'm sure that, you know, he has other tables to to worry about and that sort of thing. So in a lot of ways, it's improving the game uh, and helping restaurants be more efficient, which means more money. If you can turn tables faster and that sort of thing, that's, that's all part of how it should all work for restaurants. Yeah. And th- and that's exactly what happens. It's, it's a win-win. Um, it's just, yeah, it's exactly like you said, it's one of those things where it was a process that was done in a certain way. And then someone said, you know what, this can be done better. And, um, it, it, it is. It's been done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of the other ways I was reading that uh, restaurants are really using technology to uh, become more efficient and become um, better at what they do overall are just digitizing a lot of their inventory systems, which I was reading Anthony Bourdain's book, uh, No Reservation, no, 
I was reading Anthony Bourdain's book, um, Kitchen Confidential, where he talks so much about uh, just how how detailed his records were as far as keeping inventory and how anal you had to be about that just to make sure you stayed on top of it, to know exactly how much of everything you have. But if a chef can spend less time worrying about that, then he can spend more time worrying about the menu, more time worried, worrying about uh, how efficient the kitchen is running and you know how well dishes are being prepared rather than worrying necessarily about inventory. So you can even use AI and different technology to digitize and to keep better track of your inventory systems, which seems to make a ton of sense. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it depends on the restaurant, but margins on food can be so small that when you're building a menu, it kind of turns into a math problem. And yeah, like you said, before, before we had the ability to do it digitally, uh, it was a lot of work. (laughs) And, you know, now when you have order forms that are on the computer and you you know you know exactly what's coming in and what it's gonna what uh, kind of revenue it's gonna bring in on the table. Yeah, I mean it saves a lot of time for for chefs to do what they're supposed to be doing, and that's making great food. Yeah, and and you want restaurants to succeed or fail based on how good the food is and how good their customer experience is, not. Uh, things like inventory problems or things like that, right? Like I want the restaurants that serve the best food and give me the best time uh, to stick around, not, you know, and and I want as many things that could affect that to be removed out of the equation so that we as the consumer get the best possible, uh, get the best possible restaurants, not just the, uh, maybe the ones that have very good bookkeepers or something along those lines, yeah, you know? Yeah, and I, I wish I could say that every, every great restaurant uh, stayed open forever, but right. I mean, you just pointed out that there have been times that restaurants that people really, really liked closed down just because they didn't really take the time to do that kind of thing right. And it's just so much easier to do it right today. I absolutely agree. That is Matt Farley. Matt, what's the blog again and where can people find you online? Uh, Farley'sFoodReview.com. That's F-A-R-L-E-Y-S and then FoodReview.com. So check it out. I'm keeping people up to date on the Dallas food scene. And thanks for having me. Thank you for being here, man. On the Market Scale Food and Beverage Podcast. Coming up, we're going to get into the history of home brewing. So you're going to want to hear that if you have any interest in beer whatsoever. Or if you're just a casual uh, casual listener and you think, hey, this might be interesting. It's very, very fascinating to me. So stick around for that. That is coming up next on the Market Scale Food and Beverage Podcast. Thanks to Matt Farley for joining me for the news analysis segment of the Food and Beverage Podcast brought to you by MarketScale. Next, we're going to take a look at the beer industry. And more specifically, we're going to look at Anchor Brewery out in San Francisco, California. We're going to talk to Scott Ungerman, who's the brewmaster there, and also get a little input from Charlie Papazian. He founded the Association of Brewers and has written a book called The Complete Joy of Home Brewing. He's the longtime president of the Brewers Association, knows a lot about brewing beer as well. So we're going to hear from those two guys and get into to the beverage industry a little bit more coming up next. This segment of the podcast features a mixture of two conversations, one with Scott Ungerman, the brewmaster for Anchor Brewery in San Francisco, and the other with Charlie Papazian, the founder of the Association of Brewers and the Great American Beer Festival. We'll hear them explain the history of Cascade Hops and talk about how Anchor Brewery started the IPA trend in America. But first, Ungerman is going to begin by explaining how a member of the Maytag family came to own Anchor Brewery and began forming it into what it is today. In 1965, Fritz Maytag... um 
who had recently graduated from Stanford University right here on the, on the peninsula, um, was at a, at a place called the uh, Spaghetti Factory and having a steam beer, which was his favorite beer. And uh, the owner, a, a gentleman named Fred Koo, uh, informed Fritz that this was going to be the last Anchor Steam beer he ever had because the brewery was about to close its doors. And uh, Fritz didn't want to let that happen. So he went and visited the brewery the next day, um, bought half of it on the spot. They were down to just three accounts in the city. They were down to you know double digits in their bank account and, and needed a savior. And Fritz was that guy. And he was Fritz Maytag of, of that Maytag family. So um, he came with a little financial backing. And, uh, and he was able to you know purchase the, the entire brewery within within a year and and um, eventually uh, got more accounts first he, he got the beer right that was what he focused on first so very famously one of the first things he bought was a microscope uh, figure out how the beer was fermenting figure out what was going on with his beer um, and then got the process to where he developed more consistency with the flavor of the beer and really then began going out and selling the beer, first around town, right here in San Francisco. Um, and then eventually in a wider radius. And Anchor Steam Beer became this cult beer for San Francisco, something different. When Fritz bought the brewery, Anchor was making two beers, a light ale and a dark ale. Fritz knew immediately he didn't want to continue to make the dark beer, so he discontinued it and worked to perfect the steam beer for seven years. It's hard to think that a brewery would only brew one variety for seven years, and that would be unheard of today. By the mid-1970s, Fritz Maytag was looking to brew a unique beer to commemorate a major American milestone. When he came up with the idea of making Liberty Ale in, in 1975, he wanted to do it first to... Um, and I, I remember this because I was actually alive in the mid-70s. So um, I remember America was hyped up about the bicentennial coming um, in, in 1976. And, and there was a lot of anticipation of that. And, and Fritz, uh, being a, a history buff himself, um, decided to make a beer that was the 200th anniversary, that commemorated the 200th anniversary of Paul Revere's ride which was on April 18th, 1775. So on April 18th, 1975, he brewed the first Liberty Ale. And that Liberty Ale um, was once again, something completely different, right? To make an ale, first of all, is enough different, but to make a dry hop tail and, and use a new hop, the Cascade hop variety, which hadn't really been introduced or showcased in any way. Uh, Fritz decided to take that hop and use it as a bittering hop. And then he had also heard about um, a lost art called dry hopping. The Liberty Ale was unique at the time for its choice of hops, the Cascade Hop. This is very common today, but in the 1970s it had just been introduced and just as quickly was almost destroyed. Here's Charlie Papazian to discuss the history of the Cascade Hop. Well, the, the, there's an interesting, you know, parallel uh, story and things going on in the beer world, uh, not only were, you know, microbrewers and homebrewers emerging in the 70s, but there were some interesting ingredients that emerged in the early 70s, mid 70s, and in particular was the Cascade Hop. And that was developed for the large brewers who showed an initial interest in that, that variety. Because you have to understand, to cultivate a new variety of hops, it takes seven to eight years um, from start to finish to get a harvestable new variety up and going. And so this hop was, it took time, it, it was introduced 
I believe Coors was an early adopter of using some of the these Cascade hops in their beer, but it wasn't a dominant flavor, and they weren't using the hop as brewers use the hops today, with the you know late hopping and dry hopping and getting all that wonderful hop flavor and aromas. In those days, it was used as part of the boil, and it probably introduced some subtle, quirky, enjoyable, interesting flavors to to light lager beers. But it didn't enjoy magnificent success. So what happened was that there was an abundance of cascade hops. And the hop growers were wondering, well, now what are we now what are we gonna do? We have all these hops. Um let's let's see if the these home brewers and uh these microbrewers are interested. Maybe they they'd like to use some. So they were available. Perhaps the other hops that were available were not too interesting. They made good beer, but the Cascade hop had this very wonderful citrusy, piney character and flavor and aroma if they were used in late hopping and perhaps dry hopping. But those techniques really didn't involve, didn't evolve till the early until the early eighties at, at the most. So what home brewers were doing was the only fresh hops that they could conceivably get were usually cascade because most of the other hops were unavailable. Um and there was an overabundance of cascades. So it was a it was a fortunate fortunate set of circumstances that were set up that introduced beer brewing and hop using hops to ho- new brewers and they played with these hops and were able to oh nurture a lot of different characters out of these hops that the traditional brewers weren't aware of. So through experimentation and mistakes and successes, um the cascade Hop became a legendary success in the early days of the microbrewers. As a matter of fact, that hop was, I've been told that hop was almost killed. Um, they almost ripped it, ripped them all out, but there were a few people that said, no, we need to save them for the, for the microbrewers and the craft brewers. And, you know, there's something here. And through their efforts, they, they were, they were saved from extinction and, uh, are still popular today. Fritz didn't want to just do something new. He wanted to marry new trends with old world methods. Here's Scott Ungerman from Anchor Brewing again. And he had also heard about um, a lost art called dry hopping um, that the English had used in making uh, India pale ales. When they shove actual hops in the, in the cask, uh, they learned that, that uh, putting hops in the cask preserved beer for a, a long journey. Um, such as one to India. And so that's where the India Pale Ale was born a, a couple centuries before as well. And, and so Fritz commemorated uh, you know, Paul Revere's ride, where of course he said the British are coming. Uh, and and uh, that was his, his, his take on it. Well, I'm gonna make a British beer and I'm gonna bring it to America and I'm gonna do it in a distinctly American style. Whether they were rediscovering old methods or innovating new ones, craft brewers were changing the way that beer was being enjoyed in America. You know, craft brewers didn't reinvent everything, um, but they certainly popularized it with a new kind of beer drinker. That is essentially the difference that craft brewers and home brewers brought to the table. It wasn't the beers that an older generation remembered that were going to be popular. What happened was microbrewers and home brewers, craft brewers popularized to a much younger generation, the excitement of something that was perceived as new and different, flavorful, and interesting, and had a story behind it. 
um, whether that story was innovative or whether that story was a throwback to tradition, it was still the idea of the newness that captured the imagination of a younger generation of beer drinkers that really established the roots and the foundation of the success of craft brewers that continues today. And when it came to the introduction of the Liberty Ale for Fritz Maytag in 1975, it was a case of perfect timing. What he introduced um, by making Liberty Ale in 1975 was, was a concept that people weren't really embracing at all. And the timing of that was excellent because that was right around the time that um, home brewing was actually decriminalized in America. Uh, thanks to, uh, I think that was at least a couple years later, once Jimmy Carter was in office. And I believe it links to Jimmy's brother, Billy, who uh, is of course a, a fan of beer as well. But uh, once home brewers got a, got a hold of, of what was going on in America um, and got a hold of Liberty Ale and tasted it, they started creating their own new hoppy pale ales. And uh, as, as the first microbreweries popped up in the late 70s and early 80s, Liberty Ale was clearly an inspiration to several other brewers who made pale ales out here on the West Coast, the first dry hop pale ales. And to that, of course, you got to IPAs eventually. And, uh, you know, if, if you trace the lineage back of any IPA in America, it all comes back to Liberty Ale. Man, that is awesome stuff. And if you love beer the way I love beer, and I actually love Anchor Steam beer as well, it's just great info to get from those two guys, from Scott Ungerman and Charlie Papazian. That is all for today's episode of the Market Scale Food and Beverage Podcast. Thank you to all of our guests. Uh, in particular, thank you to Ray Camillo, the founder and CEO of Blue Orbit Restaurant Consulting. Thank you to Scott Ungerman and Charlie Papazian. Thank you to everyone who helped out with this episode as well. As always, we appreciate you listening. And if you want more great content just like this, head over to marketscale.com. We have plenty of podcasts and written content for you to peruse. Uh, But that is all we have time for for this episode. Thank you again for listening. We hope you have a great week full of awesome food and good drink as well. Until next time, I'm your host, Tyler Kern. We'll see you again soon.